You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. This discussion is with Professor Christopher Freeberg. Dr. Freeberg is the John A. and Grace W. Nicholson Professor of English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Freeberg is an award-winning author of three scholarly books and numerous articles including Melville and the Idea of Blackness, Black Aesthetics and the Interior Life, as well as Counter Life, Slavery After Resistance, and Social Death. He has won numerous academic awards, fellowships, and titles, most recently, University Scholar, Center for Advanced Study Associate, Conrad Humanities Scholar, as well as the Henning Cohen Prize from the Melville Society. In this discussion, we discuss his book, Counterlife, Slavery, After Resistance and Social Death, where he examines slavery texts and media to show how enslaved Africans created meaning through artistic creativity, religious practice, and historical awareness both separate from and alongside concerns about freedom. So we're here today with Dr. Freeberg. Thank you for joining. Um, before we get into uh, your book, I wanted to start by asking you about the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project and how you came to it. What sort of concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical, drew you to the questions in Counter Life? Well, after... Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. This is a great opportunity to uh, discuss uh, my work, and I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. Uh, after I wrote a book called Melville and the Idea of Blackness, that was my first book. And in, in there's a chapter there uh, in, that, in that book on Benito Cer- uh, Melville's Benito Sereno. And in that chapter, I talk a lot about, I make the argument or talk a lot of it about how, how slaves, um, how slaves are not, are outwitting, not just out, outwitting their masters, but part of, but part about slaves having a, pro, masters having a, a problem with uh, over, their overconfidence in knowing their slaves meaning that they can know what they know so much about their slaves that they can manipulate them so well that they know what their slaves will or will not do. And in Benito Sereno, the 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 captains aboard a slave vessel are so confident that they that their slaves will not revolt that they don't put the slaves in chains at night and of, and and to their surprise the slaves organize and revolt against them. <laughs> Um, and, it, and it's com- and it's a complete and total surprise. I mean, it's a violent and bloody revolt, and it's well organized. And so, and so, I started thinking about about when it comes to the relationship between uh, sociological, historical, and legal knowledge 
that talks about what it means to be a slave, what's the relationship between that and what's an actual dynamic between slaves and master, the, the relationships between enslaved Africans and and their, and their peer groups or social groups. Um, and so I just started thinking about how all of the possibility and diversity uh, in, in those social lives, or even if you, someone wanted to characterize it as social death, there is still, to me, an, uh, an seemingly infinite variety of possibilities with how people feel, express their feelings, express their longings and their goals. And I've and I thought about I I don't I didn't think that a lot of the dialectical back and forth that we have about slavery whether people are resisting or not whether they're whether they are taking taking advantage of opportunities to um to whether their um their culture is sufficiently um, revolutionary or it whether whether it reproduces. The constraints and values of the master. I felt that those oppositions, while they while they did tell us a lot of valuable stories, a lot of history, a lot of uh, scholarship is framed uh, in 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 that in those lexicons or rubrics. But I also felt like can always or too often framing the framing um, what slaves' lives are like. Or representations of slavery in those oppositions uh, didn't tell the full story. That there are so many more stories and so many ways to think about think about um, how slaves' lives were purposeful, valuable, interesting, uncanny, enigmatic, and strange. And um, and so I think that's what that's what led me to um, think about like how can I write a project that kind of intervenes on that com- on on a scholarly conversation and tries to shine a light on where, where we, how we got to a place where we seem to be kind of locked up in oppositions and, uh, and where we could go with it, where we could go in different places. I'd probably say that I just, uh, um, I just, I'd probably say that just to defend, uh, a lot of the previous, previous scholarship and literary cultural historical studies, I don't think any scholar of slavery thinks that they're not attending to things that are enigmatic and ambiguous and contradictory. Everybody would say like, that's what they're doing. I think my issue (laughs) or my, my issue is more or less the, the framing. Why, why is your project or what you're doing significant? Well, you know, slaves actually have more of a political impact than we thought, or they were a much more, deeper part of this narrative of freedom than we thought or when we thought that slaves were really resisting and doing uh improvisational um everyday uh disruptions they actually were reinforcing their master's paradigm and being better slaves and so when people end up framing why their work is important in those oppositions it's still i feel like it limited the, sig- the significant analysis of what things were contradictory or ambiguous and enigmatic. Like it's, well, I was trying to say it's hard to have it both ways. It's hard. <laughs> but I mean, people do, like I said, there's a lot of, there's a, a version of scholarship that where people do have it both ways, but I was trying to say, well, if it, if, if we really, if we really are seeing these social encounters 
uh, and social conflicts as producing contradictory, ambiguous, enigmatic constructions, relationships, then how do we keep them in boxes? You know, or, or why don't we invent m- new boxes or multiple boxes mm-hmm. or boxes that have that have more of a kaleidoscope type of surrounding where it's hard, you know. So 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 that's I think that's where I don't know if that says it all, but that's 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 where the, <laughs> the project came from. The, ultimately, I try oh uh, this my work on Melville and and slave narrative and the relationship between Melville slave narrative and Benito Serino, and uh, and then I and then I moved towards. Uh, I ended up working in the 20th century for my second book, and then I came back to slavery for my third book. Um, so I think I hope that helps. <laughs> no, it does. And I do like the kaleidoscope because that was the chapter two when you present, even, especially what clicked for me was the art installations. And then you really, the pictures you put in there, and then, of course, the analysis you put in makes you really think outside of these paradigms of agency, power, social death, social life, and damage resistance. But can you talk a little bit about this, um, how your book tackles the, the deprioritization of political transformation when we're looking at slavery texts and this concept of counter life, you know, that you put forward. So really conceptualizing slave social life um, and art discourse as counter life. That was, I know, a very loaded question because I had so many, I just wanted to know so much. But I think like the first part would be the deprioritization of political transformation um, when we're looking at slavery texts. Like maybe it isn't as huge as we wanted it to be. That scholarly imagination. Hmm. Yeah. That's a. I've, that's a, a. A very. It's it's an interesting question because I think just starting out there, like I'd imagine people listening think of political transformation in different ways. So so there are different kinds of political transformation. There's different. There's you know like some people uh, depending on the field or depending on their orientation in the field may think of. A slave, a group of slaves, or an image, a slavery, a, a side of slavery, to quote Salamisha Tillett, as impacting something legal, something, uh, th- some kind of social design that has a direct bearing on political figures and political power, or the way that masters organize against, against, and around keeping their slaves uh, uh, more efficient workers. And then there is a whole range of like a, I would say like a politics of, where in some ways you can't get around a, po- a politics of can be applied to anything and all times. And uh, and so I guess what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to say is I tried to put the emphasis on, I in other words, a lot, first of all, a lot of what we read, read and read about slaves or that emerges from different archives of slavery is brought out because it's politically significant to the moment. It's from it's from or p- partnered with aboli- you know somebody trying to help somebody get free or somebody trying to help them be better slaves. So in other words, I in some ways I'm reading that material for other things that are significant. So um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I my to I guess try to my priority was taking was thinking about things that are radical and transformative 
without them necessarily having a direct or indirect political impact. So I wanted to keep the radical part or, or interesting or transformative part, but not, but, but still saying it can be important uh, and interesting uh, without necessarily having an impact on the people in power, direct people in power or whites in power or, or, and, or, or slaves notions of freedom. And I just, and I, so I guess I'm saying that's the con- that's a, that's at least the concept. And so I thought, I mean, I think it's when you when you take different examples. So if I think about like Radcliffe Bailey's paintings, for instance, um, you know, and part of his process process of producing an artwork is to kind of follow, use his historical knowledge, his historical imagination, his family history to think about connections in, and also his, his, I think he did his own, uh, what do you call it? His family ancestry DNA, um, uh, DNA results. So he takes all those things and follows through his artistic imagination. And in my head, I'm thinking, but there's there, that there, there's a way that he wants us to confront and think about slavery. Think about the gold, the, um, the the uh the slave uh places of sale on the on the on the west coast of Africa or the auction block in the United States or a plantation in South Carolina but he doesn't want us but the way that he intervenes through that history um is not necessarily to show us just that we need to confront or face slavery it's you know he wants to think about his own anxieties about time, the way that he hears music in those in the in in his own um, in his own sense of 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 trafficking through that history, the way uh, the different colors that remind him of his family ancestry and legacy and family portraits, and so and 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 what I think and the important thing is how he ends up seeing that as having value and purpose in history without that, that doesn't necessarily go. I mean, you could say that in some broad sense that be, you know, because, you know, Africans were often excluded from history or the history was deemed irrelevant that him reclaiming history is its own type of political formation. Mm. You know, that's, that's true. But I think that there's all for, for Bailey, how he uses color and how he, uses time and visualizes family photograph uh, photographs also becomes its own radicalness and in, in art in terms of its art form. And to me, I can just sit with that and talk about why that's important. doesn't mean that the political transformation about reimagining history is not important. They're both important, but I feel like I can write a whole essay just on the way that he uh, puts together and arranges things different types of artistic tapestries with history is radical and purposeful enough because he's also showing there's a different way to think about family that's not directly tied to legacy and lineage. So family becomes important even when we can't fully account for family. That's to me an important statement, an important something that, mm-hmm. and how he configures, configures his art to, to make that manifest uh, to me, it's 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 its own type of work. It's a formal concern. It's a social concern. It's a historical it's a historical concern. But we need not we need not 
have to say, well, and this is important because it helps us get more free or it helps us realize that we can resist something, some type of, of constraint of anti-blackness. And I think while you're speaking, you you place so many images in the book that really do stick with you, especially from, I really do appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that. Um, but really the art installations from Bailey's work and that classical sheet with the waves coming onto the classical music sheet, that, I mean, it's literally like what you were just saying, the art discourse is counter life. And it doesn't take away from the political transformations, but it kind of adds on to it. And then I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I see where he's going with it. And it that really, there was also this other installation with the bones. If I don't remember if they were bones or if they were like wood, but it was once Piano again, keys. a part of that. Yeah, okay. So, because that was just, um, I mean, that was a striking piece. And I'm, I think one of them was in DC. I wasn't around, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was very... Um, yeah, his art, like you're saying, it makes you think about the different par- outside of those paradigms. But can you speak a little bit about what do you think it means or to, to look at these texts and read for counter life? Yeah, I, w- well, yeah, I was just thinking about uh, what you said. I think Bailey is, a, is another good transition because when the... Um, part of what he does with the installation with the piano keys with the piano keys is he never compose he never puts it together every time he puts that installation together it's never done the same way twice and um and so he and so he so you still have this improvisational affect turned into visualization and material and and materiality and i guess what i'm trying to say is is that that when I'm reading for counter life, I'm thinking about the different types of self and social relational concepts that that emerge differently each time that art installation is reproduced. So he produces it differently to, and he produces different affects and meanings and symbolism every time he does it. So, so what I'm trying to say is, I I want to to seize, peer into realize um, the uh, the um, what's the word I want to say the not just the different kinds of senses of reality he's producing in his art that's what that's what I'm trying to say so and and that and and also in that installation um, in that installation it's very much about the there's a the piano keys, and there's usually this. There's at some point there's there's this black head that um, uh, that looks like a piece of onyx. It's really shiny and beautiful, and it's placed in the middle of these keys. The keys are like the roving sea, and you, and one thinks of the middle passage, but each and you hear the sounds of the conch shell, and usually some form uh, of different types of sounds that he that he chooses are playing in the background. And so I'm saying is he puts that together differently. And so, but it is about history. It is, it does recalling the middle passage. It is recalling the dead, the ones who, people who died and people who survived their trauma. All of that is being recalled and reimagined and redone differently in each time that he does it. And so what I'm trying to say is in reading for counter life to answer your question is I'm, 
I'm each time that he does, it, I'm open to re- to stretching and reform and and de- deforming what I had said before about about the piece. With each time it's being done, and opening to different, you know, to re juggling the the significance of of death, life, history. I know these are all abstractions, but I feel like that's I'm I'm not committed to I'm not committed to any particular outcome, uh, you know, in, in my re in my reading, I'm, and I'm not committed to any, I'm trying, and I say, I'm not committed to any ulterior, um, ulterior set of frames to, to read that. Um, and I'd probably say that it's really, uh, every time I say I'm not committed to it, it's really an unworking an un, an unmaking because, as I mentioned in the beginning of the book, that's how I was taught to read. And that's how, in fact, that's how I teach in some ways, many students, I begin the classes with how they can think about, um, you know, uh, damage and re- damage and cultural freedom or re- uh, so, some uh, social death and social life. I teach my students all these terms. I also try to get them to stretch through and beyond them. But so, part, in other words, so I do think that they're very helpful in helping us understand um, and categorize because categories can be helpful. Categories, definitions, all that stuff can be helpful. I don't want you know, every. Um, my point is not to have any categories or definitions. You know, everything, and not say that everything is ultimately some floating glob of meaninglessness, or me, or you know, it's. I just try. I'm just willing to take a stand, or or pursue a line of inquiry that doesn't necessarily end up with political transformation as the end goal. I think that one. That's one thing that David Scott I thought was so brilliant of his book on conscripts of modernity when he talked about the framing of the romantic framing. Of uh, post-colonial and colonial scholarship, and also the scholarship of slavery, where it's like, well, um, that's why he proposes this concept of tragedy, where you can consider um, ambiguity uh, and and things that are aspects of conflict, of of self-concept, of enslaved Africans and others that that don't really pan out in some of these. Uh, of uh, um, frameworks that we've set up. So I hope that's helpful. No, it is. And I think it it just brings that um, statement to point of two things can coexist at the same time in terms of categories are helpful, but then we have to make mm-hmm. sure not to focus too much on these categories. And I, at least that's that was my takeaway from your book, you know, whether it's reading French Caribbean slavery texts of making sure I'm coming into this with what the text is offering because we we come in with our own assumptions of what we want to see and how we want Mm -hmm. this to be transformed and thinking, well, what what else can exist beyond Mm -hmm. the categories that we've been we've been taught and we want to believe and we want to complete the circle this we we want to have this some Mm -hmm. sort of victory ending and you did say that in your book and i was like yeah we do we we want to have some sort of like triumph and overcome um but then Mm -hmm. what happens if we like kind of let that go what what can we Mm -hmm. learn from that and i i do appreciate your text in that sense yeah, well, I mean, I, I give an example. I don't deal with, I don't deal with Phyllis Wheatley in the book. I'm currently writing a book on 
on black culture, uh, at least the concept of black culture and what kinds of traditions people write about, write about, uh, sing about, and try to pass on. Uh, and per- Phyllis Wheatley plays an interesting role in that book because so much of the questions that people asked about Phyllis Wheatley was whether or not she, you know, like used her Christianity, her ability to write poetry to kind of, to critique, mock, satirize um, uh, her condition, or did she ultimately, uh, what did she ultimately reproduce her condition? Uh, and her and, and did Christianity ultimately put a veil over her eyes in terms of the depth and oppression that she felt and that she uh, expressed in her work? And so part of it, well, first of all, I think, you know, in some ways, probably both of that's true, some version of that. Um, I think that's true for all of us, actually, in a way that's, uh, but, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, but what I, this is to go back to this kind of thinking about counterlife. What I try to focus on is when people talk about her learning to read, they talk about who taught her to read and whether she learned to read and write under, what did she learn to, how to read and write specifically? Like, did she actually learn Latin and Greek in addition to English and who taught her and under what under what conditions? And partly what I, I was thinking about was just what type of effort did it did she have to undergo to actually just to learn how to to learn how to write, mm. and re, I mean, in other words, she doesn't just become literate. She goes from a person who cannot read or speak English at seven years old to one of the to by a teenager being one of the top three poets in the North America. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I'm it's not like you know what I'm it's no simple feat. I guess what I'm trying to say is the amount of practice and mastery that she had to commit to uh, is, you know, you know, there's no way, there's no, uh, there's anybody who's tried to master anything, scholarship, an instrument, paint, whatever it is, you've got to practice, 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 fail, mess up, get, you know, get upset at yourself, mm-hmm. go back to it. It's a, it's very arduous. It's an arduous thing to become an excellent at anything. And so partly what I was trying to go back to is look at how people were taught to, how people were taught to read and and through what you know and through what through what mechanisms through the, you know through the Bible through other forms of uh, of English grammar um, the classical classical educate classical forms of literature and knowledge like Latin and Greek and and thinking about what she had to do to just to 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 demonstrate the kind of mastery. And it's that story in and of itself, which largely we don't know, but my point is we know that it happened. We, excuse me. We know what mm-hmm. she didn't know and we know where she ended up. And so, and we don't know anybody in between who just magically, magically, um, what do you call it? Uh, magically becomes a, a fantastic and, uh, and, and, fantastic, ambitious, and groundbreaking poet. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you don't, to me, you don't even have to ask the other questions of whether, you know, she, uh, you know, whether she was sufficiently um, independent from, you know, modes of white supremacy or white forms of Christianity. Or Those are good questions. I'm just saying that 
there's a lot more there. There's a lot more there. Even even I feel like what my description oversimplified all the possibilities. Uh, and uh, especially when you start to consider, when you start to consider all of the social networks of slaves in 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 Boston and how they met so frequently, so frequently that they kept having to produce laws against their meeting. And, you know, so they had, so I'm just saying there's, you know, we imagine her as sitting up in a room, you know, reading the Bible and writing poetry when there's a, there's a, there's a uncanny and uh, dynamic social life of, of, open secrets in that moment that we have to use what we know to also speculate about. But I don't mean just like speculating as creating a whole fictional life for her, but there's things that we can go back to do and, and, and with great complexity and great range that don't necessarily have us, have us, you know, asking the question, you know, was, you know, Phyllis Wheatley, sufficiently revolutionary or not or what's the the measuring stick of her revolutionary ethos Hmm. so the one thing i did wonder though while you know reading for counter life or this concept is with an effort to thinking outside existing paradigms for contemporary black art practices do you think this would create tension or discomfort with previous Black aesthetic movements? I I guess I was just wondering because it's not exactly easy sometimes for people to hold two things at once. Like, and, but do you Mm -hmm. think this would create tension or I do like what you said earlier in the sense that, you know, why not have multiple check boxes and we add to it and have this um, kaleidoscope. And the more you talk about it, the more chapter two makes sense in the in what you're putting mm-hmm. forward. But do you think it would? There's a tension that would exist. Um, so, do, when you say previous aesthetic movements, do you mean like Black Arts Movement, Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance, that yeah. type of? Do, do yeah. you, or like? Mm-hmm. like uh, those alongside what like the black contemporary black art practices of today well see i i've got a lot of inspiration from contemporary black artists say like the like um uh i always mess up her name this is the place where i want my edit out is it i think it's thelma golden <laughs> thelma golden name. she's a okay. they gold golden goldman is the mm-hmm. is the um It's Thelma Goldman. I always mess up her. I always mess up her name. She's a, uh, you know, revolutionary art curator, mm. and she, and uh, and 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 she was one of the people along with Glenn Ligon that coined that term post-black. Mm. And I think people got got you know, of course, didn't really get what they were saying initially by that. Um, but I think it echoes something that Trey Ellis was writing about black literary studies in the nineties when he wanted to say that anything goes mm-hmm. for black art, like that, that, that they wanted, didn't want to place limitations on black artists. Um, and now at the same time, you know, I, I mean, the answer would be yes. I, I think if like I'm studying right currently the black, black arts movement, black arts movement writings um, and criticism, uh, on, uh, and 
you know, when you look at things, the writings of of Amir Baraka, Hakim Adabudi, um, the Gwendolyn Brooks's reflections on her own transformation and who she became as a poet in the late sixties, uh, or Addison Gale, Larry Neal, there's just so many people, Audrey Lord. Um, when you look at uh the their reflections on what about what they think uh what kind of uh, what the, what kind of art practices um black people you know we, we should think not black artists should take on and think about seriously part of it's because it, you know a lot of it is really rooted in the period uh in the intensity of the late 60s, the aftermath of the assassinations of Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, the the, in, the 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 level of instability that the Vietnam War created on drafting so many black men, uh, and the burdens that put on on black women as as caretakers, as people, you know, um, not I mean, and as professionals. I mean, it, it just I mean, uh, the the it just there's a lot of communal communal weight and burden mm. and grief uh in the in in the late 60s and at the same time there's a powerful radical movement radical movement and so so there so the idea of establishing a a black arch tradition that is uh that wrestles with that rejects and ultimately transcends the west um uh is, you know, is at the utmost importance for people. Uh, what does black really mean? How do you, you know, and, and how are we going to be black, produce black art for black people to revolutionary, revolutionize our mind and make an impact on controlling, having a more controlling investment in black communities? And so I'd probably say, you know, what my, what my, work would do to that moment wouldn't really focus on their obvious and necessary investment in political transformation but mm-hmm. i would still look for all every so many other things that were also there um mm-hmm. like what does it mean to what does it mean for for nikki giovanni to be writing poetry as a black woman in the in the early 70s but also feeling like she doesn't really have that there really isn't a tradition. In other mm. words, that there is enough diff feelings. There's enough feeling. There's enough feeling of difference from the spirituals and music and sounds that come in generations before her, which she's inspired by, completely inspired by. But at the same time, she's writing in a different moment, and there and so. What does it what does it feel like, and what is it? How do we think about to uh, uh, when we're trying to establish or form a tradition when there when there isn't one or there isn't a coherent one or there's so many? That's a, that's an epistemological and aesthetic question that that you know that yes it has uh, it has great power in terms of talking about political transformation. But it's a question that can also be asked out differently, and if especially if you move from Nikki Giovanni to other to uh, to um, Sonia Sanchez yes. and to other 
uh, film figures or art figures who are writing at that moment. So I'm just saying, I'm saying you can take the material basically and spin it different directions <laughs> and, and yeah. think about, you know, you know, there's one way to talk about, you know, the different ways it's political, different ways it looks for political transformation. There's another way to think about the history of, 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 of an aesthetic form with the anxiety of, with the anxiety or, or potentiality, not just anxiety, the potentiality of, uh, of not having the potentiality of not having a tradition, not having a tradition also makes, makes, enables other modes of being, being free or being open. Uh, I think it's important for us to think about uh, not just, it's true that, that, that Nikki Giovanni, Sonia Sanchez, and all these incredible, incredible uh, peop- uh, activists, writers, poets uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, um, were thinking self-consciously about establishing uh, an art slash political tradition. And what I'm trying to say is that you can ask many questions about how liberating in terms of feeling it is to feel like you're inventing in a, a new tradition or uh, a tradition that really hasn't been made coherent or, or dis- that hasn't been distilled yet. I mean, in a great conversation she had with James Baldwin, uh, she, uh, Nikki Giovanni asked Baldwin about, about black writers and about the black arts movement. And, and, and Baldwin kept remarking about how new it really was. Not that black people writing was new, but just the idea of kind of becoming a movement, becoming a tradition, uh, uh, a constellation of figures that can be identified with one another was new. And what I'm trying to say is that by itself, that thinking about aesthetic form, the histories of those forms and performances can be thought about, uh, you know, outside of whether or not um, that, uh, whether or not that they achieved something sufficiently radical in terms of political terms. What I'm also interested in, just by the way, is how writings, writings in popular culture about slavery impacted those thoughts about what a tradition would be. Uh, and so anyway, so, I, so if the slavery comes back to those questions as well, because uh, the, the, the idea of what, ki- what kind of slave life was valuable to be talked about in the late 60s or in 70s was actually quite, in- it becomes quite interesting in these debates about William Steyer and Nat, 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 William Styron's Nat Turner, and then, the, you know, the fiction of Ernest Gaines and, um, and uh, Gail Jones and other people who are writing at the time. But I hope that that makes sense about this idea of, I was just wanted to, try, I was trying to get to this idea about previous uh, movements uh, and why I don't think what I'm saying necessarily like go is in, is in, in my way of reading is intention because my way of reading counter life, it can, it's always about asking a different set of questions with new material or the same material, you know, I mean, I just think about like what I—I I don't think it actually makes it into this book, but but Frederick Douglass has a literacy school uh, in his slave narrative, which I always find surprising how many people like I'm writing about that in my current book, mm-hmm. but how many people do not talk about that because he 
he emphasizes so much about not just the teaching about the kinds of efforts it takes to mm-hmm. learn to teach slaves how to read in secret, but he talks about the the challenges of of learning how to read. This goes back to the Wheatley question of what the the kind of discipline and consistency it takes to learn how to read. You know, in circumstances in which people are hostile to you learning how to read, <laughs> and I, I and the kind of brotherhood, and he mentions the word love that is shaped in these moments. So it becomes about love, of brotherhood, sisterhood, family, you know, and literacy. And the other point about literacy in the book is all about how literacy makes him aware about what it means to be free and how he can shake off the white man uh, and in terms of his aspirations. But in this one, it's it's quite different. It doesn't say it's also not related to freedom. It is. But my point is there's a lot of stuff happening and a lot of layers uh, in in this scene of slavery that can be talked about that, that Douglas is clearly trying to emphasize as well. So can we also link this to um, Edward Jones's The Known World that you talk about in Chapter 2? So can you talk to a little bit of, about how specifically, you know, Jones is how he demonstrates key moments of counter life that you, you take as a way of like, hey, guys, like this is a... These are some of the black artists. If we were to relook at them and reanalyze them through a counter life lens, we see them unmaking established norms of on the depiction of slave social life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I it, Jones is one of my favorite people to talk about because he his book, The Known World, is so it, it the rhetoric of that book is so committed to the certainty and truth of a sociological and historical vision, meaning that the book is about, is, is su- supposedly about a real place that is not real, that, that there are historians for that are not real historians. So he's, he's definitely studied how history, how people produce narrative and stories out of history. And he's going to replicate that sense of truth and reality and objectivity and his in the in his language and his and uh, the way in the, in the cadence of the way that the sentences are written, um, but at the same time he's very much invested in 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 undoing uh, any form of sociological or historical certainty, and um, and so uh, so he has this character named Alice, an uh, enslaved woman who's known to be mad. She's known to be mad. People think she's she's crazy, um, or you know, mentally disabled, um, and and that. But she's but she still was an efficient worker. So she so she was able to balance being she was able to balance being a worker, someone who could produce and labor for for her black slave master. But also, she was unpredictable. She would wander the grounds at night, and it turns out that. Uh, spoiler alert, that she was very much sane and that she was wandering the grounds at night to figure out the, to know the grounds better than anyone else so she could escape. And, and, uh, but nobody knew that. Everybody, everybody thought that she was just, you know, that she was mad and she did a good job of, of, of behaving in such a way. She did, did such a good job of performing, uh, uh, be, you know, mental illness 
that um, that that she had basically tricked everyone. So she was our trickster figure. But what I love about her character is that is that uh, Jones doesn't leave it there. He at the end of the at, at the end of the book, you have you know Alice has actually escaped and she's helped others escape, and uh, so Alice just by doing that has her own type of moral value, you know, and so that she is that, that she wasn't just a selfish figure that she was someone who wanted other people to escape, and then she creates this community. Mm. Dedicated to freed enslaved mm-hmm. Africans at the at the end of the book, and that there, and then when one of the brother mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. one of the slave masters shows up and sees uh, and sees her because that was a, formerly a slave of his, and sees Alice, and he sees this these artworks that she had created on the wall. My point in bringing up these artworks is that not only did Alice transcend. And change, you know, and uh, change what people thought about her through her actual trick of her vanishing and not being caught. But she also produces these incredible works of art that 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 cannot be described. And the language that Jones uses that Alice produces this work produces works that it was like what God sees when He looks down at the plantation. And so, so she had. So what was going through her um, and what she was able to transcribe into art was something far beyond uh, the um, the human imagination. And I think it was like, so it was, uh, and so my point is that I think is, is it's, I like that story. I like that, that, uh, that train of, of narrative in, in known world precisely because it 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 mocks our certainty about the relationship between what people are exposed to in their environment and what they're thinking and what we know about them and that's of course in the title of the title of the book and so part of counter life is attending to both of those is attending to what we can know but how we're often mocked and undermined by what we can't know and that we don't need to have, we don't. We can have both, and still be, um, and still, uh, and still uh, be attentive to uh, scholarly and critical analysis. And I think that's I'm learning that with each day <laughs> in grad school that there are just some things I will never be able to know, and I have to be okay with that. And I always think just reading one more book, I'll, but the more I read, the more I'm like, I actually don't know anything, <laughs> which, you know, it's it's like, well, you're, you're going to be an expert. I'm like, am I? Will I? You know, and I was actually going to ask you about the, the title, like, what do you think, Known World? And you, it's on it, right? It's, it's well unknown <laughs> or just things we will never be as certain. And I guess to tie this into the final chapter of, counter history because it did make me think um, of that link so the final chapter you look to fictional exemplars of iconic black male heroism and you examine like douglas's novella the heroic slave i like how you tied in you know contemporary works like tarantino's django and chained 
and an episode of Boondocks. I'm, this is my first time really seeing an analysis of Boondocks. I was really excited. I was like, oh, um, really taking the time mm-hmm. to read it. So that was really nice. But you hone in the episode of the story of Catcher Freeman. So can you tell us how these artists deploy history as countertext, but really how the masculine heroic romance function as counter history? Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, part of the argument um, in in the in the analysis or in that in this in this um, chapter on counter history, it, it is about that. What do counter histories actually do? And counter and what I what I was trying to to emphasize is that counter histories actually seek. We we tell counter histories to for a variety of reasons. We we excavate the voices of people who have not been heard. Um, we show um, uh, we show how unofficial accounts of political events actually shape the political events as much as our official accounts. Uh, we sh- we 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 make we make we make visible. In the invisible invisible groups and minorities who have shaped the majority narrative. So, and but part of what I'm trying to say about doing those counter histories, and I think this is probably evident in slavery scholarship, is that we seek to make those unofficial counter histories actually histories, a part of the official record. So, so the counter histories are radical at the beginning, but then they seek to become part of part of actual history itself, part of what uh, uh, official history itself. So there's something that counter histories don't want to be counter histories forever. <laughs> so in part, in part, so part of what I'm trying to t- try to argue is that there's something both radical and conservative in the counter historical historical aim. It's t- and, and, but, and my argument was really, to show how counter histories really just pr- proliferate more counter histories. So the more we show, the more we the more we show about people we don't know, the more questions that we have about those people that we don't know and the and other people were who were excluded. And so uh, and so so that was kind of like my argument that 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 counter histories yes they do pro- they do produce you know, when we find out that Sally Hemings had a major impact on Thomas Jefferson, or we find out about, you know, about, um, you know, uh, about how much, you know, other slaves had an impact on their masters, um, their, their, their masters and the way their masters taught, the way they did agriculture, the, the way that they understood commodities and, and exchange goods and services, all the things about social life that the activity and thought of slaves were impacting. And we find those in uh, in in specific and in general ways. Um, we also, like I said, we we can those counter as those histories become accepted. Um, they may not do the they may not do the the uh, the reparative work emotionally that people want them to do. I think Cynthia Hartman is very good about talking about that that that. That restoring people's voices may not do the effective or historical repair that you want them to do. Nonetheless, they still, you know, produce and proliferate these 
other counter histories that that to me remain that continue to remain on the uh, outskirts uh, or 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 tr- or outside of our grip in terms of their uh, historical outliers. So their counter histories are seek- on the one hand seeking to become official history, on the other hand they're always producing historical outliers, um, and so that's what. Uh, that's part of what 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 the what the argument is, and I thought, um, and so I love the story of Catcher Freeman, um, because uh, in this you know you know the Boondocks is you know for me a hilarious and profound set of uh, cartoon in the in the print form, the newspaper print form, and also in the the cartoon form, and the Catcher Freeman episode. You know, is about uh, this the story of of of, of what do you call it? Um, Robert Freeman's ancestor, and Robert Freeman is always you know his kids or his uh, grandchildren are cons- always say you're always saying somebody famous is related to us, <laughs> you know, and these people aren't either aren't real or they're not related to us. He's like, oh, let me tell you the story uh, about about uh, Catcher Freeman, and of course. You know, he tells the story, and they're like, "Oh, that's you know BS. We don't even believe that story." This is especially Riley, the Riley, who's the the younger grandson, and then the self hating black racist uh, um, Uncle Ruckus comes in, and he tells his version of a Catcher Freeman, and his version is straight out of Thomas Dixon's Klan stories. It's it's terrible, and then. Uh, Huey goes on the internet and says, "Actually, there's another version of a Catcher Freeman." So you get to see that these that we keep producing more stories about Catcher Freeman. And at the end, Riley's like, "I got a story about Catcher Freeman too," and so and 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 how you get to see how the stories mimic the aspirations of the storyteller. So you're getting a, pro- a proliferation of stories about the same object. In the interest of the storyteller itself, of the storyteller him or herself or theirself, and so that's partly, and so so it does get at the so the truth of the moment is in the act of so what I'm saying the truth is not about which one is the most accurate. How do we have the real story? The truth is the proliferation, the necessity and significance of seeing the proliferation of stories. Um, and and the kind of unwieldiness of history as it keeps on producing narratives based on the per- rooted in or connected to the personal interests of the story of the storyteller. Mm-hmm. And this really does remind me of griots, you know, in West Africa, where each gener- each generation mm-hmm. griot is going to be a little different from the previous, and they're affected by obviously the temporality of what 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 they're in. So Mm -hmm. the storyteller of today is going to be very different from the storyteller of yesterday and the day before. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a beauty to it in terms of it's also a little bit it's um, it's funny. There's a hilarious side to it, Um, but it Mm -hmm. also shows you just like you said, the storyteller puts in, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. their aspirations. um, and that's why I can never get the real true stories of my family. <laughs> it, it's just, it's just, I've given up at some point because I'm like, everyone's going to tell me something different, you know? And it's, um, right. it just reminds right. me of those multi-narrative 
um, novels. <laughs> well, right, right. That's that. That's the reality. The reality is that, like the 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 challenge is, you know, is there the even you as if you were there to witness whatever the story was, would even that be the true story? Because <laughs> you're you know you're witnessing it through your own impressions and and the you know so if you're even watching it live, it's. Uh, you know, you watch it live, and somebody else watches it live, and and they're and you're both saying different things about it. <laughs> so, um, it's it, that's the challenge. I mean, I think that I, I like. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that what I was the I in in that chapter with a discussion, a brief discussion of the Hidden Figures film about the black women who were behind the calculations for the for the moon landing, and what I what I loved about that story is how those women were called the machines. So there is this kind of human simultaneous humanization and objectification at the same time, but it's kind of an objectification that we admire because it's about their ability to calculate math, the ability to make mathematical calculations and how important they were as machines to something to to an important uh, historical event and at the same time when you watch the movie, we're only getting the only three of their lives become really visible, but the other people's lives are just there. And so that's what I meant, like proliferating. Like now we want to know more about the other women who were there and their struggles and what they went through in their lives and how it shaped and impacted what was going on in their communities, politically, socially, economically. Um, it's, it becomes a whole different, uh, a whole, uh, uh, different types of questions and investments as you move through that material. So partly what I was trying to do is to yeah. recognize that <laughs> as a concept, uh, as a concept that the, that the stories were never quite, qu- never quite done. And that they're really, that, that to, that it's important for us to see these as on that as ongoing and uh, rather than see them as the possibility of being reparative uh, is uh, it's more important to see them as kind of ongoing and ungraspable, meaning the, the history yeah. is always going to out, outpace us, uh, outpace us because we won't ever really get, like you, like you said, you won't really ever get a grasp of it. At the same time, it's important to dig into and analyze what we do know and also realize the proliferations of things that we're trying to hold on to and speculate about that we won't grasp mm-hmm. or cannot grasp. So I don't know if while you were writing this book, you had a specific reader in mind. Um, most of these books on this podcast are not beach reads. You know, it's <laughs> they're not that, you know, you, well, I take these books on vacation, mm-hmm. but not everybody does. But <laughs> did you write this book with a sort of imagination um, of the reader? What would you want as the author of this book readers to walk away with in terms of ideas, orientation, new, new curiosities? I guess my, th- I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about a book manuscript that he reviewed for a major press. And he's, and one of the things he said to me was, I really wish that this person had read your counterlife book. And he said that because he thought the person had, had made so many outstanding insights into black culture and black community that weren't, were significant in their own right that did not have to be 
justified by their political by the power that they made politically. And he's like saying that that and and the other thing is that the political power, political transformation, is so ingrained in what we do that we often don't require people to explain what they mean by it. So on the other, so on the one hand, he was saying that this that this brilliant writer had so many insights that they did not that they did not flesh out in other ways, like uh, whether it be formally, aesthetically, or morally, or philosophically. They had other avenues to pursue. But then when they pursued the tr- more traditional, yes, this is political, they didn't explain why. And they didn't go into the, 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 the ways that it was transformative in new and interesting ways. So in some ways, it, what my friend was saying is that, that it, his book had so much more power than he was able to, to voice because he was overly committed to some of the uh, over, overly committed to uh, uh, explaining the significance of black people's actions in political terms. Um, so that, I think that's what, or in more, and, and so I think that's what, I, so if you ask me what, what type of reader, I just want people to think about, uh, think as deeply as they can and listen to the archive in way, in ways that, uh, in in ways that are not traditional, like is you know, in ways that um, that where where other importances that you may not have thought of before come to the forefront, uh, and, and I think that listen, I I'm telling you right now, I wrote the book. It's a challenge for me. It's not easy for me to do that because I'd probably say because there's a great deal. I'm not going to say certainty. There's a great deal of part of the reason why I studied, I got into studying African American literature and culture and history was to understand the way that the ways that my ancestors, how we got here, how they survived, how they resisted, how they didn't, uh, how the ways that the things that, that they wanted to pass down to us as a collective or individually within a family. Those, those were of great interest to me. So, <laughs> you know, so and reading that in conjunction with Marxist and socialist revolutionary material or other types of, of thoughts about radical social transformation, um, you know, from Du Bois to Marx to Audre Lorde, I mean, that, those types of co- questions were at the forefront and th- and that's how I was trained. So um so I guess I'm trying to say is it's not a hard, it's not what I'm trying to do I think you know I think it sounds it sounds a lot easier than it is. That's why I, I really thought about this at the beginning of the book I talk about listening and being patient with the archive because you know I had been reading Zoro Zoro Neil Hurston Their Eyes Were Watching God for years reading and teaching it until I realized, wow, there's a lot of things in this book that cannot be, you know, that cannot be understood in strictly in terms of race, gender, and class, or um, in terms of whether this character achieves her, uh, the fullness of her voice of womanhood, or whether she ultimately is shackled to her grandmother's, uh, patriarchal um uh you know hauntings so i felt like those that a lot of things that i became interested in the book just didn't fit those 
uh, didn't fit those things. So, um, so that's why I tried to, to encourage other people to, um, and I think the, and I don't think I'm alone on, I don't, other people are definitely doing versions, versions of this work. And I celebrate those people and I read those other scholars. Um, but that's what, I think that's what my, my ideal audience would be is just a little more patience and listening with the archive to see if, if, um, of if other questions kind of bubble up eventually outside of the back and forth of whether someone can achieve a better sense of freedom or whether they're more firmly entrenched in a hamster wheel of social death. And to return that question to you, how, you know, you did speak a little bit about this with this previous, but how do you walk away from this book and the process of writing and, all those questions, it seemed like it led you to more questions, which is, I assume, <laughs> is just the regular thing of when you finish a book. But uh, did you leave you with new shifted, I guess, shifted sensibilities and curiosities? Uh, well, absolutely. And it's funny, and it's a great paradox, because the book that I'm writing now, it's my first trade book, and it is about this, you know, I'm using the concept of soul to talk about uh, black culture uh, in America, you know, and mm-hmm. in a philosophical way, in different concepts like yeah. resonance and resistance, things I that I was challenging, kind of in my other book. But at the same time, I'm kind of going talking. Uh, it, it is a a book that's very much about, um, uh, very much about how the intense pressures of white supremacy and slavery uh, how they shaped black people's folks attentiveness to moral and political questions. And so on the one hand, you know, so I'm talking a lot about uh, oppression and resistance, (laughs) you know, in this book. And, but at the same time, what I feel like I learned from writing the Counterlife book is I'm also including, um, including the discussion of individuals like uh, like Gwendolyn Brooks, like Jewel, the the um, owner of the Catch One Disco in LA, Jewel Williams, um, of Phyllis Wheatley, and talking about on the one hand how how uh, the conditions that they are in. Uh, you know, between black and white or oppression and resistance produce them, but at the same time, those boxes can't hold them. Uh, and that's partly what we learn about about black culture's innovativeness is that uh, in the kind of innovation and transformative possibility that people uh, want to pass down as something valuable uh, to, uh, you know, as part of their legacy. Uh, and, um, so, so that's, so I feel like in the one hand, I'm the, I'm the, the, the black culture book that I'm writing is, has one foot in the, the kinds of, uh, ways of rubrics that I'm challenging and one foot in the different directions that I'd like for people to consider going in. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Freeberg. I'd love to have you back on because that sounds like it's going to be a book that will generate lots of conversation. <laughs> but thank you so much for making the time. Um, and I urge everyone to read this book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you again. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Nice.